Today's episode is about the power of one person to change lives or the course of history. And this could be your story too. In it, we're going to be interviewing the current reigning Miss Hawaii, Samantha Nayland, and we'll talk about Chadwick Boseman, the declining interest in Black Lives Matter in this country, and about performative allyship versus real change. This was not necessarily the episode we plan to air this week, but it is one we hope you listen to. And when you perhaps tell yourself that you're too tired, we understand we're with you, or things are too hard, or what's the point anyway? Remember that you have your spheres of power and influence, and it is a choice for you to use them or to hide from them. Don't ever forget it. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So right from the start, I want to say something about the recent passing of Chadwick Boseman, who managed to film not one, not two, but 10 films while battling colon cancer. Those 10 films included The Black Panther, both Avengers movies, and Marshall, where he played Thurgood Marshall, hence the name. Previously, though, he also brought James Brown and Jackie Robinson to life on the big screen, and he perhaps was such a great biopic actor. You know, he brought these characters to life in a way that was real and visceral and tangible. So his battle with cancer, as we know now, was extremely private, but his impact on the world was not. And so I want to talk specifically about his impact on my family. So backing up a little bit, I was pregnant with my first son when Trayvon Martin was killed back in 2012. And that's the same son that six weeks after he was born, I put his bouncer right next to our TV and took a photo because that was the day that President Obama was reelected for a second term. And I wanted my son, my multiracial son, to know that there was a half black president in office when he was born. Because right after my second son was born, it was not an Obama inauguration. It was Tamir Rice being killed in the streets. He was 12 for carrying a cap gun. And that only reinforced throughout the years and as I had my sons and they were so little that black was seen as bad. And so if you have white kids, you may have never consciously thought about what I'm going to say next. Because when you think about who are the heroes in the books and the movies that you have your kids watch, let's just name a few, you know, Superman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Batman, and don't even get me started on Disney. And even a couple days ago, my kids are obsessed with the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious because apparently, you know, that's what you want to do during your Zoom distance learning is write the longest word you know. So I thought, great, I'll show them the Mary Poppins clip from, you know, when she sings this whole song about it. And I pull it up and I play it. And it's a white Mary Poppins, obviously, talking to a white chimney sweep. And even the cartoon characters behind them are white. So, you know, my kids are not white kids. They're not seeing themselves in those happy moments, in those powerful moments, in those moments that make them believe that they can do anything, that they can be anything. So for kids who are growing up Black, it's really hard to put into words what the movie The Black Panther means to them. Because if you've seen The Black Panther, and if you haven't, you should stop this recording, go watch it, and then come back and listen, because it showcases Black strength, 
and black power, black intelligence, and black resilience in both male and female characters. And so if you are a kid who saw that, you know, like my husband took my oldest son who was five at the time. And as a aside, we don't normally take my sons to adult movies, but this was so important to my husband that he took him on opening night to have him see a superhero who looks just like him. You know, but that wasn't, it's not just impactful on the kids who went to see it. It had that same impact on my husband. It had that same impact on anyone who was growing up without heroes who looked like them, because this showed them that they could do it, that there were people out there who looked like them, who believed in them, and that were powerful. It wasn't Black was bad. It was Black was amazing. And I think that message can't be understated. And that's just one film that Chadwick Boseman made. So he's one man. And one man who was probably really tired because he was filming in between bouts of chemo, but he knew that what he was doing was more important than any reason he had out there to give up. Because do you know why it was so, what he was doing was so important? He was giving people hope. He was giving people, and in particular, Black people, hope back. He gave me hope back as a mother of boys who I still am trying to protect from being killed in the streets, by, from being shot in the back, from being killed while they are riding their bikes. He gave people hope. And that is true strength. And that is knowing your why. So you know what? Now when I get tired, I'm thinking about Chadwick Boseman. Rest in power. I'm trying not to cry right now. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. So you'll see though, like Chadwick Boseman stepped into his roles and had this platform, right? Like there are times where change doesn't have to come from a movie star or someone with celebrity, even though we are going to be talking to the reigning Miss Hawaii in a few minutes about her activism. Amazingly, after something she heard on our podcast, but it can come from you because like we've been saying, you have spheres of power, you dear listener, you, me, Sasha, me, Sarah, and we all have influence in our life that we can use to make change. You know, obviously, Chadwick Boseman, he used this big screen and the films he agreed to do and the work he put into that. For Miss Hawaii, I mean, she's got her crown and her connections to get that first introduction. For you, it can be as easy as asking your school's PTA what their anti-racism curriculum plans are. It can be asking your fitness studio if they're going to be playing more music by black artists along with, you know, the white female pop star music or white male EDM music that seems to be super common in group fitness spaces, which obviously are also working so hard to adapt to COVID right now. It can be checking in with your team at work and really listening when you ask people, especially marginalized individuals, if they're doing okay. I mean, it's really about asking questions, listening, and figuring out the next steps together. These are all really small things that we can do, but I think not everybody does, and we don't often do them. And why, though? Why aren't we doing it? And, you know, Misasha, I heard you and felt you so strongly talk about how you are personally invested in this conversation because of the color of the skin of your husband and your children. You know, if you identify as white and you aren't married into it, if you don't have dear, dear friends or people you love, you may not be affected personally by this conversation. 
we, if you, I say we, and it's interesting that I said that because I'm also half Japanese, half white, and I am invested in this conversation, but it's really easy to say, you know, well, I feel a little uncomfortable or I'm not sure where to start, or I'm not sure how to start, or I'm afraid of messing it up. And you know, the bottom line is I'm not sure why I should care. And I guess my answer to that is, and my explanation for why people come up with all those excuses is that the reason we don't take action is I think at the end of the day, fundamentally, we're a little bit selfish and we're a lot afraid. And I said it, right? I think both of those things really play into it. You know, you want to think you're in it together. I mean, the truth is we are. None of our society functions without so many other people, from the people who collect our trash, to the people who stock our shelves, to the people who see our children when they're sick. Like, we need each other. But there is this, like, insane sense of individuality in this country that we have held on so tightly to this idea, this false idea of meritocracy. And if I work hard enough, I'll get what I get. You know, it's tanking us. And I think a lot of people hardly ever think about how we affect others around us. You know, we are not thinking about our powers of influence. We're not thinking about how other people impact us. And we learn to cover our selfishness with this like, I'm so nice aura, right? Like, hey, I waved to that person or like, I'm acting nice, right? It puts us out to really get uncomfortable to look out for others. That is inherently selfish, right? And so on the other hand, if we allow ourselves to open up our empathy and remember, you know, our favorite phrase on the show, we rise by lifting others. If you really take that into consideration, you really like open your heart for a minute and go, hey, if we are truly in it together, then we're only as strong as our lowest common denominator. We're only as strong as our weakest citizens in this country, as our poorest citizens. You know, then you realize, my God, like we're afraid. This is actually dire. We really see these people. And then we go, oh my gosh, this is so serious. Oh, now if I don't get it right, if I screw this up, I'm going to make it worse. Or if it's our first time venturing into these conversations, I don't want to get my emotions hurt because I tried and I didn't get the pad of approval on my back that I wanted, right? Fear, I think, if you have these intentions of trying to do truly what's right, is like the excuse that we go, oh, I want to do this nice thing, but poof, I'm going to let it pass right through me. Because if you actually take action and you put yourself out there and you risk making mistakes, it means putting yourself on the line. And I think as a human being, putting yourself on the line for anything is scary. So you end up just sitting there thinking and believing you're anti-racist, wanting to help. But is that really helping? I pulled up this study because I'm like that. I pull up studies. And research by psychologists Ari Kruglansky and Tori Higgins and their colleagues suggested that we have two complementary motivation systems. It's the thinking system and the doing system. And we're generally only capable of using one at a time. So if we're caught up in this thinking, you can't confuse that for doing. Action actually is the thing that is going to define you, not what you were thinking in your own head. You can't build a legacy based on what you thought you were going to do. It really is only what you actually did. And John F. Kennedy has a great quote. There are risks and costs to a program of action, but they are far less than the long-range risks and costs of comfortable inaction. So how do you get started when you're hesitating? How do you get over that like first selfishness and to fear? I think this is the answer. Stop pretending you know what you're doing. Just give up all hope 
of knowing that you're doing the right thing, except that you don't want to do it, right? Like, except that you don't want to make a mistake, except that this is uncomfortable. Literally tell yourself what I'm doing is really uncomfortable. And then remember your why. Chadwick Boseman pushed and had his why. He gave people hope. What is your why? Let go of any reasons that come from that, like trigger word should, like I should do this because it's the right thing. Or let go of any notion of like, this is going to look good on social media and people told me I did a good job. Or also let go of otherwise I'd feel bad. Focus on taking action for a good reason for you. Like you have a total free pass. Do it because. And so figure out your why and then decide what it is you're going to do. Literally do the whole specific thing. Where is it going to take place? When is it going to take place? Make a commitment to yourself and start. You don't have to do anything. You're choosing to do this one thing. Start where you can. And so as you're looking around now, where can you make change? Like what conversation can you start? Or what place can you support with your money? Or what event can you physically show up to? Who can you ask like, and push back to? Like, what do you mean by that? And really listen like, to when they respond. This power is within all all of us. And if you're not sure where to start, reach out. I mean, we've got resources, prompts, things that can help you get a conversation started. We're here to bounce ideas around with you. If there's something you want to do, just think about what action you are committing to taking. Goosebumps. Amen. You know, so we're talking about action, quite obviously. And one great way to take action is by learning something new and seeing how that might impact how your daily life is. It can be small. We've got a great example, though. So for Miss Hawaii, the reigning Miss Hawaii, Samantha Neyland, that came in the form of her trying to learn a little bit more about Juneteenth and educate herself prior to going on a panel to talk about the history behind the day and the importance of it as you may know from listening to this podcast, or if you're not familiar with what Juneteenth is, go back and listen to that episode that we recorded about it, because there was a lot of focus on Juneteenth this year. So you can imagine that she was beyond surprised when she listened to our podcast episode about Juneteenth, where we mentioned that Hawaii was one of the few states that does not have Juneteenth as a state holiday. She did her own research, and after confirming that that was indeed the case, set about going to change that. Here's her story. Yes, of course. Aloha, everyone. My name is Samantha Neeland, and I am the current Miss Hawaii USA, and also the first Black woman to ever win the title. Did you ever experience racism in pageantry? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, that first pageant, I didn't win. And then the second one I did was Miss Hawaii Teen USA, and I did win that one. So when I won that title in 2013, I was also the first Black woman to win that. And at the time, it was so weird for me because I grew up knowing that I was biracial and really claiming that. And yet I won this title and everybody said, oh, Hawaii crowns the first Black girl. And I was like, oh, how did they know I'm Black? Like, it just didn't even occur to me that people could look at me and know that I was Black just because I have lighter skin. Like, it just did not even compute. It was never a thought that crossed my mind. So that was really kind of my eye-opening experience to how the world really saw me. And I just knew that, you know, I was biracial, but I was always going to be seen as a Black woman. 
in my experiences were going to be different because of that. What kind of experiences, like, can you point to any stories where you were like, oh, actually, this is happening because I'm seen as Black in this world? Yeah. So when I won the teen title, and it was a huge deal, and people wrote some articles, there was, of course, haters that came along with it. And I remember driving, and I was 17 at the time, and I'm driving and listening to the radio, and they were talking about it on the radio. And this woman called in to complain how dare they crown that girl? She's not from here. She shouldn't have won. And I was like, are you an adult complaining about a 17-year-old? Don't you have anything better to do? What? I mean, just insane. And I mean, people would say things to my face of like, yes, this is a big deal. But, you know, it's okay because you're the teen. Hawaii will never crown a black Miss Hawaii. I mean, just people say these things and they don't even realize how bad it is. I had this woman, when I competed at Miss Teen USA, she, this is when I was actually on Twitter, she tagged me and every other black girl competing at Miss Teen USA and said, these are my least favorite to win. Okay, why is that necessary? (laughs) Calm down, get out of here. At least try to hide it. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine because especially as a teen, right? How do you handle situations like that? At the time, I honestly did not see it as racism because I just was so in my own bubble. I just really didn't know that much about racism. I mean, I think the Black Lives Matter movement this year has really opened my eyes to my past experiences. And I've been able to look back on my life and go, that was racist, that was racist, that was racist. And in one way, I'm thankful for that because I really did kind of have an innocent childhood. I was definitely discriminated against because of my race, but I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, oh, those girls are mean, or this teacher doesn't like me. I didn't realize, oh, I'm the only Black in the class for the teacher not to like me. There's probably something going on. So yeah, I just kind of like shrugged it off and had no idea. But I also like to think my parents did a really good job of this, of kind of sheltering us for certain things. So people would stare at my family all the time because we're a biracial family. And my mom would literally tell me and my brother that people were staring because we were just so cute. So I grew up thinking I was like the most adorable kid ever. (laughs) And I mean, it was just this false sense of confidence, but I really would walk around thinking, wow, I must be like the tip top child. (laughs) You became Miss Hawaii, the first Black Miss Hawaii in 2020. And this has been a very racially charged year. What was the reaction and what has been the reaction that you've seen? I mean, there was a lot of people who said, yeah, this is awesome. And then there was a lot of people who were like, oh, she's not from here. What is this? This is ridiculous. And I mean, yeah, it's just the same people who have their negative opinions. And I think I did a better job this time Also, I kind of was prepared for it. I knew it was coming and it really sucked. And it was really hard for me going into the competition because there were so many times where I just thought, do I really want to do this? Because I know it's coming. And I was like, I can't not compete for something that I'm dying to compete for just because I know that if I win, like people are going to say mean things to me. That's pretty strong, right? Like that's the kind of character that it takes to make change and to move forward and sort of live your truth. So I... I think that's really, really cool that you did that. And then speaking of making change, I mean, I really want to share with our audience your insanely cool email. When Misasha and I got that, we were like, oh my God, we're making ripples. Like this can happen. 
Talk to us about Juneteenth and Hawaii and how we intersected in the first place, please. Yes. Oh my gosh. I was preparing for an Instagram live that was going to be on Juneteenth. And so I just thought, well, let me listen to some podcasts and learn a little bit more. And I was on some website that recommended your podcast. And so I looked it up. I listened. You had an episode talking about Juneteenth. And in your episode, you said that Hawaii was one of the only states that does not recognize Juneteenth as a holiday. I was like, what? No, I don't want to be that. No, we can't do this. This is terrible. And I'm sorry to say I didn't actually finish the episode because I immediately stopped and had to look it up and just started doing all the research. And eventually I was like, yeah, I think it took me about two or three days because I really just had to think on it. And then I decided, yeah, we need to change this. And so I got to work and I figured out the process and what that looks like, what it's going to take and really put in the effort. And I wanted to tell you guys immediately, but I was like, let me actually make sure that I can do this first before I just start shouting from the rooftops that I'm doing it. We were seeing these amazing news articles about Maui County and how you've already been making like such huge change just from you know, that point of listening to the episode. So can you talk a little bit about the steps that you've done so far? Absolutely. So the way that Hawaii's state legislature works, because ultimately it's the state legislature that's going to have to pass this bill and then the governor will sign off on it. Our state legislature meets from January to May. So right now they're not holding hearings. They're not voting on anything. This is a good time to have the bills drafted and I do have, actually, the Senate Majority Leader is going to draft the bill, which will be amazing, because he has a lot of influence, so hopefully he can make everybody vote in our favor. But right now, the process is really just gathering supporters. So I've been reaching out to everyone possible, local elected officials, businesses, advocacy groups, you guys, and just getting people to sign this letter of support, saying, this is something we want, this is something that's important to us, and The Maui County, actually, I thought of because Honolulu, this past June, on June 18th, passed a resolution to recognize Juneteenth in the city and county of Honolulu. And so when I was reaching out to council members on other islands, I just kind of asked, hey, will you do this? And I think it was so forward and so direct, which they were not expecting from a beauty queen. And they really respected it. And they did. And it was just amazing. It was so amazing to be part of that. And it was really fun to watch these council members go, oh, okay, sure. That's awesome. So right now you're waiting for it to be drafted. You're gathering support. And then hopefully in the session in 2021, when they meet starting in January through May of next year, you're hoping that this comes to, I don't even know what the right term, Misasha, your lawyer, like what's with the floor, the, like the. Yeah, they have agreed to draft the bill. So it will be put in the lineup. It'll be given a hearing date and then come January or March, whatever the date actually is where they're going to have the hearing, they'll put it to a vote. And then I and other people in the community can show up to testify on behalf of the bill and urge them to support it. So the advocacy letter getting people to sign on is just something else to put in the packet and show them this is why you need to vote yes. That's awesome. Well, I know I wrote back to your email saying we are all on for signing on to that. So just let us know what it takes to show you our support. We're there with you. That's awesome. And thank you so much for running with that. That is such a cool 
idea and it's important. It speaks to the power sort of of one person, right? Who hears something, who is motivated and is really making change. And I know people also think on the flip side right now, we're in quarantine. It's a lot harder to do things. But I think that what you showed us is that there are ways and that you can change your focus and get things done, even when the legislator's not meeting and to drive that support and keep going. How do you think having your platform as Miss Hawaii you know, helps you elevate those causes and, you know, use your spotlight to really shine a light on the work that you're doing and advocate for? Gosh, I think it helps so much. It really helps get those meetings because definitely there was a few times I had to follow up a few times with uh, local officials, but there's also a lot going on and there's always a lot going on in their world. So, you know, you do have to give them the space, but just coming in with that title or picking up the phone to call a senator's office and saying, hi, I'm Miss Hawaii, they immediately pay more attention. And so I think when you do have a platform like this or in a position to get that attention and get in that door quicker, you have to have something to say and you have to be ready to say it because the title will get you in the door, but you have to you know, keep yourself in the room. That's really true. I love that too, because I think it's a great reminder too that what even past that introduction or getting past that first hurdle, like what are you saying then? And how do you relay that message? Mm -hmm. But yet I also think, I mean, I think I had two thoughts when you were saying that, both of you, but like one of them was, it wasn't like this linear path of, I need to get this title in order to be able to advocate. You did what you loved, you followed your heart and you went with something and then you've made it what you want it to be. So I think any of us who have this vision of doing good, yes, a title is important or like a, something you have created or pursued from your own integrity can get you places that you may not necessarily expect them to. So I think that was one message I just took. And the other thing is like, it's so important to realize too, we all have our own spheres of influence. And so I don't want anyone to give up and be like, I'm not a miss anything. I'm not, I don't have this title. I feel like we all have something in our lives that lets us influence our surroundings. So I want to just make sure people remember that too, because it could be even just a dinner table conversation, but you could really make a huge difference. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's one thing my pageant coach actually had told me when I was preparing for Miss Hawaii, I knew I wanted to kind of create that program to help teens with communication. And I originally was thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to do if, and when I win. And my coach said, why don't you just do that now? And I had it in my head that I wouldn't be able to launch something that big or get it off the ground if I didn't have this title, if I wasn't important enough to make it happen. But that's something I always encourage people because everybody will always say, oh, I'm going to do this when I have this much money or just as soon as I lose 10 more pounds or my hair needs to be this length. There will always be something. You will never totally be ready. You just have to go for it and really do it and you just feel so much better once you do and you really just take that first step and you also realize that it totally is within your grasp and within your reach to kind of make change and make a difference. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's so important because it's really the inertia that sometimes or the fear or not knowing what to say even that keeps us from that first step. And just remembering it can be very small. It can be very local. It can be like Sarah was saying, a dinner table, you know, start just talking and that you never know what that leads to. Absolutely. So 
A couple of caveats to the discussion that we've been having, though. So if you remember back in June, in the immediate wake of George Floyd's murder, there was a huge uptick in white interest around questions of race, around questions of racism, systemic racism, the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, and wanting to learn everything that was suddenly out there in the open. Those were those quiet parts that are suddenly in the spotlight for a lot of people who never had to live that on a daily basis. But currently, as we record this in early September of 2020, it looks like white interest in the Black Lives Matter movement and anti-Black racism in general is trending down. And we really, really, I don't think I can say that enough, really do not want to sit back here with a, we told you so on this one. So listen up. We've got a couple of data points here, which is why we made that initial statement about white interest trending downward. First of all, there's an organization called the Democracy Fund, and combined with UCLA Nationscape, they have weekly tracking surveys. 538, which is a media publication, did a whole study about this. And they found that unfavorable views of the police are trending back down towards their pre-protest levels among white Americans and have dipped among black Americans. So this study was done in mid-August, so just a couple of weeks before we are recording this episode. Also, they found that white respondents are also becoming somewhat less likely to say that African Americans face, quote, a lot or a great deal of discrimination though those numbers remain higher than they were before George Floyd was killed at the end of May. In contrast, Black Americans' views on the discrimination they face have remained essentially unchanged. Shocker. I think if you're the one experiencing the discrimination, the racism, you probably are still 100% sure it exists and are concerned about it. And in separate studies done by The Economist and YouGov, the share of white Americans who said racism is a big problem decreased from 45% in June to 33% when the question was last asked in early August. Three quarters of Black Americans, on the other hand, said racism was a big problem in both surveys. I mean, this is sort of obvious, but just to summarize that, why are white American views on racism and the police returning to their baseline, but Black Americans' views remaining steady? Well, like you said, stakes were always higher for Black Americans, and they are facing this continuously even through all of these conversations, ever since George Floyd was murdered, before and after it's been happening. But for white people, as media attention turns away from the protests, it's just perhaps a lot easier for white people to forget about this issue. Yeah, so let's use another data point. Let's talk TV coverage. In those same studies, they analyzed closed captioning data of cable news broadcasts from the TV news archive. And in doing so, they found a huge spike in the number of clips that mentioned racism or Black Lives Matter as the protests really raged during those first two weeks of June. But the amount of attention cable news paid to racism in the Black Lives Matter movement has dropped as we moved farther away from peak protest activity. It should be noted much like the studies that we just talked about, coverage of these two issues is still higher than it was prior to George Floyd's death, however. But even though that coverage is slightly higher, it still suggests that it's possible that some of those historic gains that we've seen in how white Americans are really invested in the Black Lives Matter movement might not last. So, you know, and if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, that's surprising, we're not so sure that that drop is surprising because we've seen it before and how public opinion changes on things that move out of the news cycle. Let's take school shootings, for example. 
because media attention on even the most high profile mass shootings tends to be fleeting and directly correlated, no surprise, is those shootings affect on public opinion. I mean, even Sandy Hook, right? Right. Sandy Hook, you kill a classroom full of kindergartners and it is still, we still don't have that focus and public opinion on that. So, and now white Americans' opinions of the Black Lives Matter movement may be following the same trajectory. That's driving a decline in overall public support because even though Black Americans continue to back the movement at very high rates. And if you're questioning that, you should also think about how systemic racism and who controls, you know, media sources and how is news out there and put out there and think about how the news cycle works. So decline in public opinion is consistent with a long line of political science research that tells us the effects of the events on public opinion tend to last only for as long as they are at the forefront of the countries, or in this case, one group's collective consciousness. So that also means that without prolonged activism and sustained media attention, the impact of this year's protests on white public opinion could evaporate entirely. I mean, to me, I'm just like, does anybody know anybody at the top of the news media stuff? Like, can we really make sure that people who are making television that are potential influence in this realm are aware of this? Because if we're all being swayed by like media attention and social media attention versus really turning in words of me like, no, this is something that's important to me. And I will seek out those things, those sources. I mean, we're going to fade again. This all, this whole crazy year of COVID combining with this attention is going to be for nothing. And that is going to suck. And I think it's important to really, like you were just saying, to cut through the noise, right? Because there's a lot out there too that are detracting us from this core issue of our humanity, right? Like notably, we've got a big election coming in November. So people are, you know, talking a lot about politics, about our president, you know, and he's in a very public fight with anyone who dares to suggest that he might be wrong. Yet at the same time, you know, all of those news items out there are great, but they're still masking and hiding at times issues that Black Americans cannot look away from. So if you are listening and you are a white American in particular, but even if you're someone who has been sort of swept away by, you know, whatever's on the news cycle at the moment, or conversely just saying like, I don't know, I don't want to listen to anything right now, please don't look away. Make sure, like Sarah, you were saying that the struggle stays in the news, stays in your community, stays in your spheres of power. And one last caveat, because you know, we can't leave you with just one. When you're staying strong in this work or learning more about your why, like Sarah was discussing earlier, please know that your why cannot be and should not be performative. As we've discussed, it's not enough to put up your one black Instagram square and call it a day or read three books from your favorite bloggers, anti-racism reading list, although we do love reading. But it's not enough to just read those three books. And while you're doing that, emailing the black bookstores that you ordered them from to demand that they stock these books ASAP so that you can read them in time for your book club. That's also not cool. And then after you've read those three books, you're going to, quote, get back to normal. That is a privilege to even be able to say that. And if you're not sure why that is a privilege, sit there and think for a second about that about the choice that you are making to look away and who doesn't have that choice. And Sarah, you and I have been talking a lot 
not on this podcast necessarily, but even in our personal conversations about performative allyship, because that's come across our radar increasingly frequently recently. So what do you think about that? How do you see that? And how does that make you feel? It's interesting that you ask that. I mean, I guess first let's define what it is, what we're talking about, right? Performative allyship is when someone from like a non-marginalized group says that they are supporting and in solidarity with a marginalized group, but they do it in a way that's either not helpful or that actively harms that group. And it usually means that this quote ally, I did air quotes there, like is getting some sort of reward. On social media, it's like the virtual pat on the back for being a good person or being on the right side. And I think it's a really tricky thing to figure out what it means because, you know, I think it's damaging for sure but in a lot of different ways, right? Because I guess some examples of what performative allyship might be are people being like, this is outrageous. You know, like they post stuff on social media and like, wow, did you know that this stuff is actually happening, quote, out there, right? It's just lip service. It doesn't change anything. And that kind of reminds me of people being like, well, but I have a black friend. Right. Also not helpful. I mean, it kind of feels like claiming the title of being, this might be a little bit out there, but like, It's like being like, I'm a good mom because I didn't beat my children today. And you're like, well, actually, that's very, you know, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it's like, there's so much more to it than putting labels on stuff and not including the full definition of what is really, really happening. I feel like people are also going to be stopping posting stuff. We said that that's why we did like the how to be an ally when you're overwhelmed episode, because we felt like that was when people were going to start pulling back. And sure enough, that happened. And here we go again. And I guess my love hate with social media is for this is because it seems like it's the ultimate place for performance lately, right? It's like, I, you know, the people who gave their delivery guy, there's another meme or like a video going around right now. And I gave a quiz to the delivery guy and gave him a lot of extra cash, but he filmed it the entire time and then shared it on social media. So it's like, you got all sorts of good pats on the back for like doing this amazing thing. But I don't know, doesn't that take away from the integrity of it? So I guess my question is like, What are you doing in this fear that nobody knows about? I think, God, you're so good at the quiet parts today (laughs) because I'm feeling all dramatic. No, I think that that's great because I I think that it's part of our individual sort of our I culture, right? Like you want to take credit for the stuff that you're doing because that makes you special and a hard worker and someone who cares about others. But I think... You know, you think back to all the stuff that people are doing day after day that no one knows about that are still helping to move people forward. And that's where I think the strength is, right? That's the Chadwick Boseman strength. Yeah. I mean, I think there is that when you say strength, I feel like it is so much healthier for us as individuals to be confident and have a strong sense of self and know why we are doing these things. And I think because of the way the last decade has been with the ability of everything to be broadcast out there and for people to give you these superficial pats on the back, we've come to rely on that as a source of confidence, as opposed to remembering that at the end of the day, we are our own source of strength and we will be better for it if we can remove ourselves from relying on others for approval. And so if you spend time like learning about all these complicated intertwined issues that are suppressing black people, like And if you learn it for yourself and then you call people out in real life, like that's hard, that's real, that's not performative, right? Spending money consciously to support causes you believe in or giving it to people who need it, that's real. Do you post every time you give money to the homeless person or the homeless show? Like 
We need to get away from that culture. And yet I do think here's my personal struggle because I have a friend who is super active in physically showing up at protests and who is an incredibly loyal supporter and just a firecracker of a human being who really fights for change and who says that basically lip service needs to stop. Just talking about issues, learning about issues needs to stop. So then I'm like, well, am I doing enough? Do I need to show up at those protests to think that I'm doing enough? Like, but you're talking to someone who couldn't even bring herself to walk in at the front of the women's march in Denver when we were invited to do so. It was such an honor, but it's not part of my DNA. That's not who I am and what my strength is. And so it's this internal like questioning, this critical thinking applied inward of like, okay, so what do I do? What do I feel that I am doing for myself and for others? I mean, if you flip it, like, and you just sort of diminish it, like all I do is talk on a podcast. I host race panels. I work on projects relating to like amplifying voices of people of color. I'm learning how to use my money consciously, but like, is that enough? I don't know. You know, so how do we define enough when I see other people doing stuff that absolutely is more risky? Does that make more change? Or is it okay for us to live in our lanes and make change the way that we know how? You know, I think we can only know that internally if we ask ourselves that question with integrity. But I do think even if you know that, it's okay to sort of question. Because I think if you don't question, you'll go through life blindly. It's okay to feel this like, am I doing enough? But then reflect inward before you go ask other people if you're doing enough. I love that because I think that it brings the intentionality needed, right? For to do the hard work, to have the strength, because I think it's so important to reiterate too, what enough is will look different for everyone. And I think back to that sort of Twitter thread that went viral at the end of May, where it was talking about, you know, if your thing is protest, you go do that. If your thing is writing letters, if your thing is, you know, being vocal in your community, do those things and do what you can in the spaces that you can do that. I think what we want to urge you to do is do something, do it with intention, think through it, but make sure this is a continual push because as we know, systemic racism, equity issues, they're not going away until we all are invested in changing for the better. We're in it together. Let's keep going. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.